0: Hey, you uh, hear from the Lord, from His Word. So we're going to read part of it today. We're going to read Romans 12, verses 3 through 16, as we continue our series of the letter to the Roman church. So we're going to jump right into it this morning, Uh, read that text, and then ask for God's help to understand. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We'll stop there. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, which gives us broad principles. And also under, and also on top of that is specific ways that they get lived out. And all of that grounded on Jesus Christ and him crucified, the good news of the gospel. And so we ask you again today, bless us, Lord, by helping us to see through all the details here to the principles, to the, to the foundational things that make us different and that give us hope and make us a blessing to others in the world. So we ask you to come and do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, when a person is hired by a corporation, they typically get introduced to the company's mission statement and values. So, in my former job, where we made pacemakers and defibrillators, Our mission statement would have been something like this. We make life-saving devices that treat cardiac arrhythmias. That's what we're about. But then under that, there were these values that were imparted to us. These are the things that we should be like. We should have innovation. We should have quality. We should have commitment. Those would be the values that help us to make pacemakers. We might look at Romans chapter 12 as unpacking the mission statement and the values of the Christian life. Verses 1 and 2 are our mission statement that we looked at last week. We summarized it this way. We live to please God out of gratitude for all He's done for us in Christ. That's what we're about. That's the living sacrifice. That's the transformed life motivated by the renewal of our minds in the mercies of God, which are unpacked in chapters 1 through 11. There's the mission statement. The rest of the letter, and specifically chapter 12 that we're going to look at today, unpack the values, unpack the details of what that looks like in your life when you're living out this mission statement to please God. Um, there are all sorts of do's and don'ts that we just read, a whole long list. It would take us many sermons to try and unpack each one of those, but underlying all these do's and don'ts are, are common values or, or traits, distinguishing marks of a person who is seeking to live as the living sacrifice. And chapter 12 introduces us to three of these traits. Traits. Um, These are the underlying values, if you will. These are distinguishing marks of a person who wants to be uh, a living sacrifice. They are humility, community, and love. Humility, community, and love. That's our outline for this morning. Uh, Those are the underlying categories that we could collect a lot of these do's and don'ts into. And so we won't have time to go through all of them individually, but I did preach a 10-part series on these back in 2015. So go to our sermon archives if you want a more extended treatment of all the instructions in this chapter. But today we're staying more high level at the principles underneath it. So let's get to the passage and let's look at the first trait. I'm calling these traits of the renewed mind, a mind that's renewed in the mercies of God. And the first one is humility, which is thinking of yourself rightly. Humility, thinking of yourself rightly. We don't see the word humility here, but the concept is there. It brackets this whole passage that we read in verses 3 and 16, where Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So verse 16, do not be haughty, or proud, but associate with the lowly, meaning those of low social status. Never be wise in your own sight. You hear the concern there. We are naturally prone to thinking of ourselves too highly. We like to think of ourselves as wise, as being able to navigate life without the input of other people. I know how to do this. Uh, We tend to not associate with people that we think are lower than us. Those are all expressions of an underlying problem that we have, which is pride. And Paul assumes that we have this tendency because he says, I say to everyone among among you (laughs) not to think of himself more highly. He just assumes we all need this. We all have pride, and I think if we're honest, we have to admit that he's right. Um, Let me just list a few manifestations of pride and and see if one or more of these don't connect with you, or maybe better, ask the person you live with if these connect with them (laughs) about you, (laughs) because we don't always see ourselves objectively. Manifestations of pride, just name a few here. One, you draw attention to yourself in a conversation to get praise or affirmation. Like the humble brag. I don't know if that's a term people use anymore. It was for a while at least. It's defined as making a seemingly modest or casual statement that is meant to draw attention to one's admirable or impressive qualities or achievements. So you drop into a conversation, I went skydiving yesterday, ah, but it was no big deal. You know, you pretend this doesn't really matter, but what you really want is, come on, I don't want to tell you more about my skydiving, because <laughs> it's pretty cool what I did. That's pride. You draw attention to yourself in order to get pity. This is the same desire from the opposite direction. I tell you all my problems so you can agree with me that I deserve better. There is certainly a place for seeking comfort when we are in distress, but I think we know the difference between seeking comfort and seeking affirmation. Or seeking exaltation. Here's another. You don't do well with being corrected. Why is this an expression of pride? Because correction says there's something wrong with me, and I don't agree. I don't like it when you say that about me. I'm offended that you don't think I'm as great as I think I am. This is all pride. And we could go on and on and on like this. There are so many ways that it comes out. Pride's a fundamental human trait ever since the garden when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be like God like him who has no equals, like him who sets the rules. And our culture reinforces it with message like, be proud of who you are, uh, believe in yourself, you have what it takes within you. Uh, that's, that's reinforced by our culture. And maybe that's why Paul has to deal with it first, because it's been with us since the very beginning To find a truly humble person is a work of God's grace, reversing the direction of the normal course of the sinful heart. And you will be humbled if your mind is being renewed in the mercies of God in chapters 1 through 11. Because what do those 11 chapters say about us? Well, they say things like this None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. There aren't any wise people in the world. Fundamentally, inherently, we're broken. Our minds are deceived by so many things. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. We aren't like God in that way. Romans 1-11 through tells us that apart from God's intervention in our lives, we are slaves to sin that we could not submit to God's law, that we cannot please God. It says we deserve the wrath of God to be revealed against all our ungodliness and unrighteousness. It says that if there's any improvement in our lives, we have the Holy Spirit to thank for that and not our own self-made turnaround. There's nothing in those descriptions to be proud about. We have good reason not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We have good reason to be humble. But here's the cool thing. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the solution then is to think of ourselves very poorly and grovel in our shame. He doesn't say that. He says, think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Sober means clear thinking. It means seeing things the way they really are, not distorted. And clear thinking is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, it's unlikely that Paul means there that you have more or less faith to think in a humble way. That we have different measures of faith to be humble. I think in context, it's much more likely Paul is referring to the standard of measurement, which is the faith laid out in Romans 1 through 11. You will be humble, you will be sober thinking, clear thinking, if it's comparing your life to Romans 1 through 11. If you see yourself in the light of that, if you're thinking about yourself in the light of the mercies of God, Then you'll have an honest appraisal of yourself. And though that honest appraisal does include knowing that you're a sinner who doesn't deserve anything from God, it also includes knowing that you are a saved sinner. It means that you know things like what Paul said in Romans 1 that your fundamental identity is that you are loved by God, called to be a saint. And that you belong to Jesus Christ. It means you know you are forgiven of all your sins. It means you know you have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you by faith. God sees you as blameless in Christ means you know you've been adopted by God as a son or a daughter, that he's brought you into his family, cares for you personally. It means God's come to dwell in you by his spirit, and that in Jesus you too will have a resurrection to a renewed world in a renewed and new body. And so we know all those things about ourselves too. We learn all those things in Romans, and those are gloriously good things. So humility is not about beating yourself up all day long and saying, I'm just a wretch, there's nothing good about me. That's not humility, because that's denying a whole bunch of Romans. No, humility is saying, yes, apart from God, I am a wretch, but he loves me anyway. (laughs) And he's given me a great and abundant life in Jesus, and it will never be taken away from me. That's sober judgment. Humility is thinking of yourself rightly in light of the mercies of God. That's the first trait of the renewed mind, and may God give us more and more of it, (laughs) because humility is genuinely a rare thing. Here's the second trait that we see, traits of the renewed mind. Here's what God's developing, changing about us as we press in more and know him. It's community, or the value of community, which is functioning as part of a body. Functioning as part of a body. Verses 4 and 5, Paul uses the human body as an illustration of how we should also think about ourselves. He says, We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of it. This is a statement of fact. Not something to strive toward. Though, of course, it can be improved, but the reality that you're part of a body is not a goal to make happen. It has already happened. When you got saved, you were saved into a body of other people. You became connected with them in a way that can be illustrated with the human body. And so that's why Paul uses that as this illustration. What does it look like? Um, that we are connected, that we are a part of a body. Well, what do we know about the body? He says it has many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So you don't pick up things with your ears. You use your hands to do that. And you don't see with your feet. You use your eyes for that. We have many members in this human body, and they all have different functions, but they're connected to one another in an interdependent way so that each part operates for the benefit of the whole. And Paul says, that's you now, believer in Jesus. You have become connected to other people in an interdependent way. So that you have a particular particular function that other people need, and they have particular functions that you need. And together, you will become this transformed people by the renewal of your minds. This community aspect of our lives is actually there in verse 1. Paul says... Or here's what Paul does not say. Paul doesn't say in verse 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, plural. All of us just doing it independently of one another. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, singular. Living to please God in all things is something we do with other believers, not alone. And we call this interdependent community the local church. That was always God's plan A, to bring us into that, to make us interdependent on other people. You see, a trait of a person transformed by the gospel is that your world expands to include other people than yourself. You stop thinking in terms just of me, and you start thinking in terms of we. We, that is people that you actually walk through life with, helping one another along the way, providing things that each of you lacks. Life isn't just about your personal gain, it's about you helping others to experience the fullness of all that God has for us in Christ. So I saw a good illustration of this in a show that Mary and I watched on Prime. It's called The World's Toughest Race hosted by Bear Grills. I love that name, you know. Had to do it over again. Maybe one of our kids would have been called Bear. You know, that's a good name. So he's this British guy. He used to be Special Forces. He's this fearless adventurer dude. I think he's also a believer. And he hosts this show, uh, which was a uh, documentary of sorts of the world's toughest race which happened in Fiji in 2019, here's what the race involved. Sixty-six teams of four people have to cover 417 miles of open ocean jungles, rivers, and cliffs. And they have to do it in, within 11 days or they're out, right? And they have checkpoints that they have to meet. The winning team took 141 hours to complete it. And they did it on a total of about eight hours of sleep. So if you do the math... That's about two hours of sleep a night. The other 22 hours of the day is full of hiking through jungle and mud and, and elevation gain and loss, rowing, climbing, biking. And so several people are airlifted to the hospital in the middle of all this. Many teams never finish It is a grueling race. It really deserves the title, World's Toughest Race. But here's one thing. They're interviewing some of the athletes throughout this thing, and every one of them had some version of the same thing that they said. They said it was all about the team. That What what mattered most was that we succeeded together, with each one contributing. In fact, the race was set up so that you could not finish it individually. You had to finish as a team. That describes the trait of a mind renewed in Christ. We look at life like a race that we are all on together. Paul even uses that kind of language in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, Run so that you may obtain the prize, this imperishable wreath that is sharing in the blessings of the gospel. Life is, is, a, is a race, and it is really the world's toughest race because it doesn't just last 11 days, it lasts your entire life. And Paul said about that life that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. It's the world's toughest race, just living faithfully, pressing in, following Jesus. That's the hardest thing you will ever do. And we need to be there together helping each other to do it. And so we're helping each other on the way to the finish line of glory. Jesus' blood does guarantee that believers are going to get to the finish line. But what kind of shape we're going to be in (laughs) on the way and how many people we're going to bring with us to the finish line, that does require that the members of the body share their contribution that we lean in and function together. There will be individual medals, so to speak, at the end of your faithful service, but the joy is increased by receiving those awards together. So what part does each of us play in this community? Paul says in verses 6 through 8 that we have gifts, and they differ according to the grace that is given to us, meaning we all have spirit-empowered abilities to bless others in the body of Christ. Our individual gifts are not the same, but they are all to be used for the common good. Let us use them, Paul says. So time doesn't permit going into each gift that's mentioned here, but one thing we can say about everyone in the list is that they all require another person in order, in order for them to be used. There are speaking gifts here, so you've got to have hearers, right? There's prophecy, there's teaching, there's exhortation. That requires people to talk to. There are serving gifts here, which require somebody to be served. Service, contributing, leading, acts of mercy. You don't do these things in isolation from other people. By definition, the gifts God has given to you are for other people to benefit from. So Paul says, let us use them. I take that to mean we don't always use them. That we have these abilities, these God-given abilities, but we just don't make the effort to to bless other people with those things. And that can be for a, a variety of reasons. But let me just use prophecy as an example of one of these gifts. Paul says that if you have the gift of prophecy, you should use it in proportion to our faith which probably, probably again, means not an amount of faith that a person has, but our faith, meaning the prophetic words are guided by the faith and not contrary to the faith that has been handed down to us once for all the saints. But regardless, we're to, if you have the gift of prophecy, use it. The simple de- definition of prophecy is a report of something that God spontaneously brings to mind. So God's saying something. And he brings it to mind, okay? And what could that thing be? Well, it could be specific information about someone or something that you couldn't know unless God revealed it to you. That's why 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. So, God knows all things, and he knows the secrets of all hearts, and he can tell those secrets to anybody he wants. And so you might have gotten somebody else's secret, and God let let that be known to you, and he wants you to say it. Or it could be a visual picture that communicates some truth to a person or to the church, sort of like the vision Daniel had. He saw this statue, it had all these different parts, different materials that it was made out of. Turns out it's Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. And it's an explanation of what's going to happen there. Uh, sometimes you can get visual pictures. That's what prophecy is. So if you're gifted in that way, if, God, if you're the kind of person that gets those things more, more often than other people, and I know people like that, Paul says, use it. Use it. S- do something. Say something. Say that, to the, t- say that to somebody. Tell it to others. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians fourteen three it says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy is for the encouragement of other people. If you've ever been the beneficiary of it, and I have been, it lets you know God knows me specifically because he told this other person what's going on in my life. Or he gave them a picture about something that totally addresses this concern or worry or I- issue that I'm dealing with. And, and you know in that moment, God's word wasn't just written generically to a whole bunch of people, but, but God is specifically for me, and he's applying these things to my life. And so it just makes so much impact when you, when you see that happening in real time. It's encouraging. I wish we could go into more detail on that, but we have to move on. Suffice to say, the reason God has spread out these abilities to different people is because we're saved into a body called the church. And his design is that we aren't going to be independent and have all the gifts his design is that we will need one another so that together we reach that finish line of eternal glory, having been built up and having enjoyed the blessings of the gospel. He wants us connected. We are already in status, but now let's, let's lean in and let's use the gifts and let's see it grow right in front of us. I know COVID has separated us physically. But that doesn't mean we can't look for ways to use our gifts. Let's lean in. Let's, let's find the way. Let's not let the, the restrictions weaken our desire to really minister to other people. Here's the third trait of the renewed mind from chapter 12. It's the trait of love, which is seeking the well-being of others. Love is a distinguishing mark of the renewed mind that comes from dwelling on the mercies of God. It's what motivated God to give his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's the great commandment, according to Jesus, that we should love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 21. It is a long list of what does it look like to love one another, to love God and to love your neighbor. How do you do it? That's what's in here. And it starts with verse 9 where where it sets the table here. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That lays a foundation for the kind of love that we're talking about. Generically, love is the unselfish concern for the well-being of others. And you can have that to some degree, even if you're not a Christian. Parents naturally care about their children. Lovers care about one another. But the love that flows from a renewed mind is all of that and more. And it isn't God's kind of love unless it involves the whole package. So let's describe it. First of all, love is genuine, he says meaning that it's not fake kind of love he wants for us. It comes from the heart. It isn't the kind of love that the Lord spoke about in Hosea 6, 4, where he said to Israel, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. That's the kind of love that disappears as soon as conditions change. I love you as long as you please me. But if you don't, then good riddance. This is how marriages end. This isn't genuine love. This isn't God's kind of love, which is steadfast. I have loved you with an everlasting love, he says to his people. Knowing all of our weaknesses, all of our sins, all of our failures, his isn't a love that goes away early. It's genuine, it's heartfelt. Second, this love operates within set boundaries. It abhors evil, and it holds fast to what is good. So it's love that operates within the boundaries of God's will, which we learn in verse 2, is good and acceptable and perfect. What is evil is anything that's contrary to God's will. So genuine love does not promote evil, in anyone, because that will not be good for them. That would not be loving. It never tells somebody who's in sin that what they're doing is okay and they should keep on doing it because it makes them happy. That's not loving if what's making them happy is sin. True love would say, no, don't do that. It abhors evil and it holds fast To what's good. And it wants other people to be operating in the will of God because that's what's good and acceptable and perfect. If you want what's best for somebody, you will help them turn away from sin and turn toward the fountain of living waters, which runs against the grain of the idea of love, generally speaking, in our culture. Love is whatever makes you happy. If you love me, help me, you know, let me do my thing. Well, what if your thing is killing you? Love would say, no, I don't think you should do that. The list of actions that follow in verses 10 to 21 are ways that we practice this foundational kind of love that God tells us about. Verses 17 to 21 focus on how we love those outside the church, including our enemies. That's what we'll come back to next week. But today we'll look at verses 10 to 16. They focus more on what love looks like within the church, the one-anothering kind of love. And so again, no time to go through all the details, but let me just comment on three of them out of this long list here. Verse 10, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. What is that exactly? Well, it's the kind of love that family members have for one another. A boyfriend and a girlfriend might break up over an argument over or a disappointment, but brothers and sisters will still hang in there with each other, even when we disagree on many things, even if we end up with different lifestyles. Paul's saying is that Christian love is not the dew that goes away early, but it hangs in there and goes the distance with fellow believers within the church even when you find yourself in disagreement about some things. But family members don't break up over that. We are going to need that kind of brotherly affection because the only way sinful people can walk together (laughs) is if we walk together as family. That's the only way we can function as a body because we're going to disappoint each other. We're going to be annoying (laughs) we may change slowly. Some things may never change about us. So do you have a love that can handle that and not walk away? A renewed mind will love that way because remember, God had every reason to walk away from us, but he didn't do it. Instead, he pursued us With goodness and loving kindness all the days of our lives. From Psalm 23. So we want to imitate that. Then there's verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. This is an expression of love for others. Hospitality is the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, or strangers. Now, you can be hospitable anywhere. You can have sort of a, a vibe about you. People, you just, oh, you know, you, know, just, you just love them. Um, but Paul, Paul is highlighting the habit of having people in your home. Because right before that, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. You know, and saints sometimes need a meal. They need to know that they're with people. That, yeah, they, they need your generosity. They might need a place to stay. So I think he's talking here mainly about the hospitality within the church, having people over, being in each other's lives. Welcome people into your life. And hospitality is hard. Some people have the gift of it, and for them it's not so hard, and they just ooze it. But Most of us have to practice it. (laughs) And he says this is for everybody. And you know why it's hard. Because it involves rearranging your schedule. Well, I was going to do something else on Friday night, but okay, I guess we got to have some people over. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that goes through my head once in a while. (laughs) Maybe more than once in a while. Got to buy groceries and prepare food. You got to make a mess that you're going to clean up later. And most importantly, it means you have to care about somebody and take an interest in their life and have a conversation that might go on for two hours. And that's going to be hard to fake. It means I've got to really actually care about the people that are coming over. That's a challenging thing, and and it means that we want to have this intentionality to make a few hours of their life a haven, a refuge, a a place of welcome, a place of, of being served. Uh, place where they're known where they where they can open up that's what it's really about and that goes against the grain of our individualistic culture uh, of our of our desire for privacy and and walling off our lives from people it goes against all that you know we want to protect our lives we don't want to go to all the work we don't really like other people All this stuff. And what makes this an act of love is because it goes against all those base natures that we have. It's more like people who have experienced the mercies of God, who have experienced God reaching out to us and inviting us into his life. And who's our example of this if not Jesus himself who loved us and gave his life for us? It's really where hospitality springs out. And I know it can be hard to practice it in our present circumstances with COVID and all that. Um, But don't assume that people wouldn't come over. Or don't assume that there's no way to make it happen in your backyard or wherever. Um, You might be surprised. Make the effort. Try to find a way. Don't let COVID strengthen our tendency to be inward and closed towards other people. They might be more receptive than you know. I'll just mention one more and then we'll close. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's an act of love. There are two things that are best shared with others. Joy and sorrow. Sharing the joy of other people increases their joy. Why else do we post all of our great things on Instagram and Facebook. Like, I got the job. <laughs> Why do you do that? Why do you have to tell other people about that? Because when they go, yeah, that's great. Then that increases your joy. I've just shared it with other people. It completes your joy that you've shared that joy with other people. And so rejoice with those who rejoice. That's, that's a way to, to, to bless others. Likewise, the same is true with sorrow in the opposite direction. When you share the weeping of others, it decreases their burden because you're helping them to bear it. Just knowing that somebody else knows what you're going through and is praying for you and cares, that helps quite a lot. You've probably heard Pastor Dan reach out to the church. You have, he sent it in emails. Uh, saying how much he appreciates people praying for him, you know that that's meaningful that's so good for him to get through this thing, knowing he 's not doing it alone that's that 's weeping with those who weep that's that's sharing in their suffering it's it's remembering that we're part of a body where if one member suffers, all suffer together first corinthians twelve twenty six But if you're not thinking of yourself as part of a body, you won't do that. You'll just hear, okay, so-and-so has cancer, so, well, that's too bad. Um, You know, what's on TV tonight? When you're you're part of a body, you go, ouch, that hurts. And so I'm going to reach out. Yeah. That's part of the renewed mind, though. We are a body. We are members of one another. And so we think that way. We think in terms of us, and then we let that love go out to those people that we're connected to. And beyond that, to the world. We'll come back to that next week. Let me just close by summarizing the ground we've covered. If you're moved by the mercies of God, if, if your mind's being renewed by that, by all that God has given to you in Jesus Christ, then there are just some distinguishing marks. Things to pursue, but things that God is putting there things that will just happen if you do really see how God, how good God has been to us humility is going to be there we're going to think rightly about ourselves both as sinners but as saved sinners called to be saints brought into this glorious presence of God and all of his promises. We're going to be thinking in terms of community. We're going to value the gathering of the local church, and we're going to see the the different abilities we have as means of blessing to other people, and then we'll use those things. And then we're going to be those who love. We are going to seek the well-being of other people. We're going to do brotherly love. We're going to hang in there. We're not going to just separate over the election or whatever else is going on. We're going to lean in. That was God's design from the beginning. Those are the traits that God wants to produce in us. It's what we look like when we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And in these times where pride and independence and lack of love are so prevalent... He wants the church to be a refuge from all that, a place where we experience the life-giving grace of God. And it may be that the cultivation of these traits of humility, community, and love are some of the very things that create the counterculture that makes those outside of that go, how do I get into that? That can be one of our strongest witnesses is by our own character. Humble, connected to people and community, loving. That's compelling. And so may the Lord grow it more and more among us for our joy, but for the joy of those yet to come in too. Let's pray. Your will is good. All these instructions, all these exhortations, these commands that we've just read through, they're not burdensome. They're the way to life. They're the way to enjoying the blessings of the gospel. They're a way of bringing other people into it. So thank you, Lord, for showing it to us and for removing the condemnation when we see it and we realize how far we fall fall short. Um, We don't do any of this stuff to get your approval. We have it. But Lord, thank you for showing us the way. The way of, Honoring you and and growing in ourselves, growing in grace. May you do it more and more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.